The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast, episode 221, recorded on Friday, June 18th, 2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. I am officially declaring Talking Space a... Uh, oh, what's the heck is the name of those darn horns that they're blowing at the World Cup? Vuvuzela. Yes, I am officially declaring Talking Space a Vuvuzela-free zone. <laughs> you know, I could plug in an audio clip of that just to be mean. <laughs> also joining us is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hello, everybody. Hello, Mark. And also, once again, joining us is Craftless. Welcome back. Hey, guys. <laughs> Great to be back. Always glad to have you with us. And it's an excuse to play your music at the end of the show, too. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. Not a problem. So let's get things started here. Let's go into our first story, which was the Japanese mission Hayabusa, which was to gather a piece of an asteroid, has returned. What has come in it? We will soon find out. It's either going to be nothing or possibly up to one gram of sample. What do you think of that? Well, shoot, first, uh, just for trivia, uh, I read that Hayabusa is uh, another name for a peregrine falcon, which, uh, of course, we'll be talking about Falcon 9 later. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this this spacecraft that uh, shouldn't have did. And lots of details on that, but uh, congratulations to JAXA for pulling one off. Because I do believe this mission didn't go entirely smoothly the whole time, am I right? Absolutely. I read where uh, there was a, a statement that it wasn't an easy one. Numerous problems arose following launch. They lost two of their three uh, reaction control wheels. Um, they had a, a nearly fatal fuel leak that, uh, that affected their chemical thrusters. They had a, a loss of communications, <laughs> and they it says apparently they uh, actually lost the spacecraft after seven weeks and refound it. Uh, attitude control was managed by spraying raw xenon gas, which the the main propulsion for the spacecraft is ion engines that are fueled by xenon gas, and they sprayed raw fuel to uh, control attitude apparently. And here we are. We just talked to uh, Scott Maxwell about the Mars rovers, Opportunity and Spirit. And here Hayabusa, 
uh, the batteries were nearly depleted because original plans called for its return in 2007, and it just landed. So uh, it had four ion engines. I'm kind of rambling on everything I know, which won't take long, but it had four <laughs> ion engines, and it was running on one. They lost that one. They took two other engines that one of them could produce thrust, but had a problem with cancellation of the charges that build up at the engine and the spacecraft. The other engine could cancel out this this uh, charge potential, but had no way to produce thrust. So they took the components from the two engines and managed to operate them such that they still had, you know, they still had propulsion, which enabled them to make the return trip to Earth. And I think that is just incredible because so often we hear of of NASA, uh, you know, engineering their way out of some difficult jams where they find different ways of doing things than you know, it's redundancy and it's phenomenal that they had the redundancy that they needed to pull this off and to put it uh, I don't know how close it was on target but to put it in the target zone in Australia. Yeah, there are actually videos online of people that actually tracked it and it looks like a giant fireball just going through the sky it's, it doesn't seem like something could survive that kind of re-entry I mean, it looked like it was just breaking up into pieces as it came through the sky did anybody else see any of those videos? Yeah, I did, and uh, it kind of was was reminiscent. Do you remember the uh, the? I, I believe it, it was it was a probe called Genesis. I believe it I believe it was um, that kind of had a unfortunate uh, hard crash, but we still got some good data and good uh, information out of it. So um, you know, I'm not surprised that uh, hopefully that. Uh, Hayabusa has, has captured at least a, a gram or some dust from uh, the uh, uh, from the uh, Iotaka, uh, I believe it's pronounced. I, I probably just mauled that um, asteroid, and uh, but we, you know, it, it will teach us uh, so much about what's going on out there because this will be the first time we have actually an asteroid sample return return to Earth, however size it is, and that to and me is. A, I also Good read one. it's the first time that something has come back uh, since our trips to the moon, bringing back, uh, you know, lunar rocks. Yeah, that's correct. We haven't had a sample return mission in a long time. I know, I know, folks are working on a Mars sample return mission, but uh, uh, that's still in the books. So this is this is uh, kind of a kind of a, a milestone. It's also good to see that I saw also that there was just as a as a follow up to the story. Um, a Japanese newspaper, uh, I believe it was the uh, Yomori Shimbun, reported um, on uh, on the 17th that uh, it looks like Hayabusa 2's funding has been restored. Uh, initially, the prime minister um, officially you know, announced that they're going to support increasing the budget for developing a successor to the Hayabusa probe because of, I guess, because of this one being so successful. Initially, that that budget was uh, was uh, not there, and uh, that was taken away from way. Uh, it was defunded, but now they've restored that funding. Uh, so hopefully, there'll be a follow-up mission, and, and uh, hopefully, it'll it'll yield more success. Indeed, and just really briefly, while we are talking about Mars, I just want to mention that there is currently a Mars mission that just recently started up called the Mars 500, 
which what's going to be happening is there will be a couple of guys that will be locked away for 520 days isolated from the world in a simulated flight to Mars. If you want, you can follow. They will be doing a video blog, and a link to that will be in the show notes. As well, one of the members who was participating, Diego Urbina, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is tweeting about it. So you can follow his tweets and even ask him questions at Diego U. Just thought I'd throw that in there. I just want everybody to think about being locked in uh, uh, essentially uh, a little over a couple thousand square feet. I mean, they use cubic meters for the size, but imagine being locked in a, a relatively small confined space until November of 2011. It's unfathomable. <laughs> it really is. That's you. You gotta have the right stuff. Uh, Scott Maxwell talked about the team dynamics of the uh, the Mars uh, the MER program, and uh, boy, it's that really that really gives you a different uh, different look at things. And sorry to go on about this, but it's really quite extraordinary to 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 have that project and to make a go of it. Yeah, not at all. Especially seems. Like, it would be really weird to know that you're actually on Earth. <laughs> like, that would actually have to be in your mind. Like, it's somehow more imaginable to get into an actual spacecraft for that long than it is to imagine being locked in a space like that on Earth. You know, knowing there's people, like, technically right outside, you know. It's got to be um, very strange to the mind. You can, yeah, order some great, you can order some great takeout. You just have to look at it outside the window. <laughs> yeah, actually, the funny, the, the funny thing is uh, they're uh, they're actually simulating uh, the communication lines too. So as you get closer and closer to Mars, the communications for the outside world gets further and further away. So by the time you get to Mars, um, you know the the quote close quote uh, area of Mars, um, you're going to have twenty. There's going to be uh, what is it? A twenty minute lag? Twenty to thirty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, twenty to thirty minute lag time between the time you send a message to the outside world and by the, by the time they get it. So that's actually been baked into, baked into the program. So I thought that was kind of, uh, kind of interesting. I'm looking at um, the, uh, the uh, European Space Agency site, um, and there's a neat little uh, rundown of, uh, of the program's quick facts and what they're doing. So if anybody is interested, they can visit uh, the, uh, the ESA website and take a look at that. Um, the whole project, I believe, is sponsored by um, by Russia. This whole thing is occurring in Moscow. Um, it is uh, being put on by the Russian Institute of Biomedical Problems, which I thought is a very interesting name, um, as part of, um, and ESA is also participating as well. So uh, this is, again, another truly international uh, international flight for, for the uh for a potential Mars program. And I believe one of the people participating is Chinese as well. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Right? So it's good good to see a lot more, you know, work on international missions. I believe that we had a visit from the mailman. You've got mail. We have a couple of emails to our email account, which you can always send us one about any topic, and we'll be more than happy to talk about it. The email is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Let's go with the first one here. The first one is from Quantum G on Twitter, 
better known as Trent Waddington. Here's what he said. During the latest Talking Space podcast, your host scoffed at the suggestion that this was the first scheduled launch date of the Falcon 9. It was indeed the first scheduled launch date. For months, we've been hearing stupid newspaper after stupid mainstream media outlet after disappointing online space website report no earlier than dates as launch dates. I expected better from you guys. SpaceX have launched a brand new vehicle into orbit on the first try. Give them proper kudos. Do you want to take this one paragraph at a time? Yeah, sure. Why not? So, Gene, um, do you want to comment on the first paragraph? What? The, well, here's the deal. I, I think Trent, is, as much as I respect what he wrote, um, is kind of mincing um, times here. Um, you know, just because we report that there was, you know, there was a delay, there are reasons for delays. First off, I don't know exactly what the I believe uh, the, the the SpaceX uh, the Falcon 9 was initially supposed to launch in March and then was pushed off to April, and then was pushed off to May because I believe the the Air Force wanted to look at the uh, the Falcon 9 flight termination system to make sure it was up to snuff. And after the Air Force basically took a look at it, examined it, gave it its blessing. They moved on and, and scheduled it for. Um, they wanted to get the thing off in late, in mid or late May. Problem was that STS-132 had the uh, had the range uh, in mid May, and uh, I believe the Air Force had the had the range in late May, early June, um, because they had a, uh, a Delta IV with a GPS satellite on board. They wanted to get off the ground. And after the range was cleared, SpaceX had it. So there are several reasons why there, there are delays. I mean, just in, with respect, I mean, I know where, where Trent's coming from. We're not picking on SpaceX when we go ahead and sit, talk about a delay here. We're, we're saying that we're just simply reporting a, reporting a delay. Um, and just picture if this podcast was around when we were trying to get STS-127 off the ground. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and again, right there, it was it was because you were trying to launch a shuttle mission in Florida during the summer. Think about that just for a second. Um, so, you know, I remember and I remember the press going there were some members of the press going, well, can't you waive the flight rules for weather? No, you can't waive the flight rules for weather. Weather doofus. They're there for a reason. Um, so. You know, it, whatever whatever SpaceX ran into, whether it be a technical problem, whether it be something, they waited to, until the time was right. But you know, we're not picking on them. We're saying, yeah, there was a delay, and there was a delay here, and there was a delay there. So you know, don't take it personal. Shall we continue on with the letter? Oh, why not? Sure. All right, the next paragraph. About 18 minutes in, I hear one of the speakers saying that SpaceX needs funding to, quote-unquote, re-engineer their vehicle into a crew-carrying vehicle. Exactly how many times does Elon Musk, and others at SpaceX, have to say that the Falcon 9 slash Dragon were designed from the beginning to carry crew? They need a contract to develop the launch escape system and would be funded under the COTSD option, which NASA said last year they were waiting for Falcon 9 to fly before starting. Well... Here we are. No kidding, Trent. That we know that. That's the whole point of the thing. What the Wall Street Journal article, and, and I was the one who quoted it, 
was saying that SpaceX may need an additional $1.6 billion to go ahead and refit that the, the Dragon with um, avionics, with life support, uh, make sure that the Falcon 9 is indeed man-rated, that type of thing. Um, I don't know if it has received that man rating yet. Um, I don't know if there's a process in place for Falcon 9 to go ahead and receive a man rating. I'm, I'm sure that they're working on that right now. Um, but again, the Dragon also has to receive that man rating as well. I know that I know that's the whole point of Dragon to go ahead and, and not only loft cargo but loft human beings up there. But you know, it, it, the article had said in order to facilitate that. That was going to take 1.6 billion dollars to do. Elon Musk later on during the same during that same week, after uh, Falcon 9 had the successful flight, um, indicated that the um, numbers that were reported in that Wall Street Journal article were essentially all wet, and that uh, uh, it's going to take a lot less. And no, the U.S. taxpayer will not fit the, foot the entire bill will not be coming out, out, out of the U.S. taxpayers' money and not completely out of, out of COTS D. Um, so there is a truth somewhere there. There's Mr. Musk saying it's not going to take this. There's the Wall Street Journal saying, it, yeah, it will. And somewhere in between is the truth. So eventually we'll find out. All right, just continuing on to the last paragraph. Your show has always seemed terribly NASA insider to me, and so the negative comments in this section of your episode just seems like sour grapes. There's really no need for it. SpaceX is getting enough negative nonsense from the politicians without getting it from space geeks, too. Regards, Trent, Quantum G on Twitter. With all due respect, guys, I and mean, forgive me if I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken here, but I think we all did on that podcast, and, if, and folks, if you, if you play it back, I think we all gave SpaceX a pat on the back. Uh, we said congratulations. Everybody put in a lot of hard work. And it showed the darn thing worked right out of the box. In fact, it, it, it instilled enough confidence in one company, Iridium, that this week they said, guess what? We are giving you a $492 million contract to launch, launch some of our, our satellites. So, so the Iridium constellation will, could be, will be bolstered by SpaceX. Uh, so with all due respect, we did give SpaceX their kudos, and just, just as an aside, I was fully prepared in case this thing didn't work, and a lot of people were, were thinking that it might not, um, that what you do is you do what NASA has done in the past, and you go back, you figure out what went wrong, you analyze your data, you go fix it, go fly again, and... That's what I fully expected SpaceX to do in case this thing did fail. But it did not. It was a colossal success. And I, I believe everybody and every member of this panel did give uh, SpaceX their, their proper due and their proper kudos. And I will do that to this day. I may not agree with, with I may not fully agree with the policy yet. But that doesn't mean that the folks over at SpaceX did not put in a lot of hard work on this. And gosh darn it, it worked. So. You know, there you have it. I agree. I actually did replay the episode after receiving the email, and we did give kudos, although if it did not seem entirely obvious to you, Trent, once again, I must give total kudos to SpaceX for their successful launch. Yeah, but, it does, but it also doesn't, you know, I, I mean, again, I may not be fully on board yet with this new policy change, but just because I may not be fully on board yet doesn't mean it's going to happen, or, or doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So... 
they're, Plus, launch they're number one, stuff. launch number one, which was a test flight, was perfect. Yeah, I mean, shoot, you can't argue with with, with what uh, what's been reported thus far. Uh, there was only one slight problem, and I believe it was a it was a roll on the second stage a little bit. But we'll get to that you know, in our next. That email. might be planned. Yeah, that might might have been planned. Well, I guess along those lines would be a good idea to move on to the second email that we received. You've got mail. From Alan Collier, better known as Rackshot653 on Twitter. And here's what he said. Just some thoughts on your Falcon 9 discussion. The vehicle did leave the pad at T-minus zero. The clock on the Web V was not synced correctly with MCC. You can verify that from a video taken from the VAB roof where you can hear the countdown audio from MCC and see the rocket takes off at T-minus zero. I will put a link to that video in the show notes, and once you do look at that video, you can tell that it did go off at T-minus zero, and I greatly apologize for that misconception last episode. Yeah, I think I know the reason why to that. The feed was a little jerky. Um, it, again, I, I don't think the folks over at SpaceX anticipated the, the, the demand, and I'm sure the uh, the streaming server was going wacko. I mean, I lost the uh, the transmission just right after ignition, and um, it was it was really, you know, I would get a buffering message and a buffering message and so on. So again, they'll, they'll that that's 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 just PR and they'll work on that. Continuing along, also I'm not sure if you saw the vehicle roll on the launch pad as it took off, as Noah mentioned it. If you look carefully at the bottom of the rocket where SpaceX is written, and as it takes off, you can see it rolls to the right, which having rewatched the video, it does in fact roll. Was that intentional? I'm not entirely sure, but you can see when it does launch that the SpaceX facing the camera does turn almost 180 degrees. I think that was planned with all due respect. Um, I mean, the orbiter, I mean, the shuttle orbiter also does its role to put it on the proper heading, and I'm sure that that's what uh, what we're discussing here. I think the role I'm referring to was after uh, separation. Um, that, that's coming up in the email. <laughs> yeah, and that that's the one I'm, I'm 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 thinking about, and that's the one that that SpaceX themselves mentioned that was not planned. So go ahead. So continuing with the message, actually, on that point, it says, Finally, the Dragon capsule mock-up continued to roll and was spotted in Australia as a UFO. And yeah, to be I perfectly honest, even Discovery News had to do a video on it to discuss and debunk the myth. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was getting mistaken as a UFO over there. I, I saw reports of that after the launch, and I was like, oh, boy, here we go. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. I just mentioned People something. really need to remember that UFO actually just stands for unidentified flying objects, not necessarily mysterious objects from aliens. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Cass. Most UFOs can be identified eventually as something quite earthbound. <laughs> good point, Cassie. Good point. I got something to toss in there about UFOs. I was talking to a friend uh, not long ago. In fact, he's passed away now. But uh, he was what I would categorize as an old-timer who spent a lot of time uh, with military in the area of the Alaska and the Northwest. And I asked him if – I said, back in your early days flying, I said, did you often see you know, things in orbit, uh, you know, satellites, spacecraft, and such as that? And he says, well, there weren't any. And I said, oh, 
<laughs> and you forget <laughs> how how new the whole space program is. Even Sputnik wasn't that long ago compared to to aviation when you had uh, hundreds of people out flying the skies of the world. And uh, you know, here we've got our own unidentified flying objects. Uh, you know, like the reentry uh, debris from launches. <laughs> It's very true, Mark. Very true. It is amazing to think of how young all of that is. And, you know, a lot of us go out and spot satellites. And, <laughs> you know, it's like an activity now that just didn't exist 60 years ago. It's not that long ago. No, 1957. Continuing along. And regarding the second test flight, it appears that SpaceX is changing its plan, is going to go all the way and dock with the ISS, based on an article in Space Flight Now. And Mark, you have a little bit more insight on that, maybe? Yeah, kind of interesting. Uh, you know, they've got confidence from their first test flight that uh, they can shorten up their, their test schedule by one flight and combine some objectives to where they can, uh, they can be ready to... F- you know, fly outside the test program after I believe it is two more. Am I right? If not, I'm sure I'll get corrected. But uh, <laughs> that's that's what comes to mind. What little mind I've got for remembering way too many details on this so whole space business. Follow eight, baby. That's what, exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, we we kind of did that with with that particular mission after after Apollo seven. Uh, we had enough confidence in the vehicle. And, confidence in spacecraft and confidence in the training that uh, we could take the vehicle around the moon. And apparently SpaceX feels the same way about their equipment after uh, after review of uh, their own data on this flight. So, To finish the email, anyway, this email is sounding negative and I never meant it to. Just wanted to share some more information about the launch with you and the listeners. Personally, I was extremely excited about the launch and was holding my breath as it staged and whilst waiting for second stage engine ignition. I hope that SpaceX can continue to launch the vehicle successfully so America has more than one way to get astronauts to the ISS. Love the podcast and keep up the great work. Rackshot653. Constructive criticism, my friend, is always a good thing. We appreciate it. and Thanks for taking the time to write to us. And thanks for being a friend of the show. We appreciate it. Indeed, remember, any of you can also contact us here at Talking Space. Once again, there's our email address, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can check us out at our Facebook page. Just search for Talking Space. And also, we are Talking Space on Twitter. For more of this information, you could check out our Contact Us page on TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Now that I've thrown in my little plug for the episode... Let's give a big congratulations to the crew of Expedition 24 who have launched and docked successfully with the International Space Station and will now be beginning their six-month stay aboard the Orbiting Laboratory. As a you know, resident woman tonight, I have to uh, be very <laughs> excited that we have two female long-term residents on the ISS at once. Um, it's... Uh, Amazing the steps that women have taken in uh, in this whole year. Um, of course, you know we recently had the most on the station at the same time. Um, most were for, there for the short duration. Um, so to have this uh, 
milestone this week is uh it's very very exciting and inspiring I hope it really touches uh you know the girls who are uh coming up and uh you know slowly inch by inch we're getting more of a foothold <laughs> in uh a world that luckily um is one of the few where you know women can really succeed if they put in the work i, I just think it's very symbolic so congratulations to both of them and on that same, along, along the same lines, uh, Shannon Walker, who was uh, uh, was launched on the uh, expedition uh, tw- on the expedition twenty four uh, flight uh, that so used TMA nineteen uh, to join uh, Tracy Caldwell Dyson. Um, Shannon Walker is also the, the first Houstonian to finally fly on the uh, into space, um, which is kind of neat because every time you, you what were the actual first words ever spoken on the moon? The words was the word Houston. So something that uh, 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 folks who live in that area take great pride in. Um, but uh, Shannon Walker, to much to, to what Craftlab uh, was saying, um, carried uh, uh, Amelia Earhart's watch into orbit um, just to go ahead and signify how far uh, women have indeed come in the uh, in in a very short time. So again, um, congratulations to the crew of Expedition uh, 24. May they have a, a good uh, a, a good and successful mission. Just so you know, the current crew now aboard the station for Expedition 24, Commander is Alexander Skortsov of Russia. Flight Engineer 1 is Mikhail Kornienko. Flight Engineer 2 is Tracy Caldwell-Dyson. Also is Fyodor you Chaikin, Shannon Walker, and Doug Wheelock, who is Astro underscore Wheels on Twitter. I got something to throw in. This was a surprise to me. I've apparently never watched uh, live a uh, Soyuz launch, but the fact that I saw video from the uh, space capsule, you know, all the way through launch, and I think to engine cutoff in, in orbit. Uh, to me, it was phenomenal to see the astronauts, uh, you know, reaching out with a little extender uh, reach tool to operate things on the panel in front of them. And uh, one of the astronauts had a, uh, uh, it was like a little stuffed dog on a, uh, apparently on a tether above him. <laughs> and to see the effects of the uh, the vehicle's thrust, you know, on the the dog, which disappeared when uh, they had engine cut off, it was fascinating. And anybody that that hasn't managed to to see that, look for it. Look for the video. I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, truly, really, it's quite a treat to see inside the capsule. Every time I watch a Soyuz, I'm, I'm surprised and delighted by that. It's a really nice little taste of uh, what it's like for them. So tiny. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I love, I mean, I love the toy. Like, the, the fact that they use a toy in that way, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, because you can tell exactly when they hit zero G, because the thing that's swinging around is all of a sudden floating. Yeah, the the toy, the little, 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 little stuffed dog that the folks are mentioning was a talisman that, um, that was given to uh, uh, Fyodor. Uh, by I believe a uh, high school instructor, and uh, as a tribute, he was bringing that little talisman on board for good luck. So uh, again, a personal touch. And other crew members have in fact done that in the past. I've also seen a teddy bear once before. 
I believe we, you and I saw, saw, saw that launch when we were over at the Challenger Center. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. And I think that's a good segue into an op-ed article by James Oberg, an NBC News space analyst. And this was on MSNBC.com. And it's a very interesting editorial talking about how risky it is to rely on Russian spaceflight. Because as of right now, the only way, after the shuttle's retirement, the only way to get into space will be via the Soyuz. Now, he brings up six interesting things, and that may become the leading threats known and suspected to the last remaining lifeline to the station, the Soyuz. The six main ones that he mentions are price gouging, technological flaw, crew training, diplomatic stability, terrorism, and demographics. What do you think about this one? I have to thank Mar- uh, uh, Mar- Marcy Faulkner. I believe she goes by Marcy MMF on Twitter um, for bringing this article to my attention. And uh, I, I, I thought it was intriguing enough to bring up on here on the show. Um, the price gouging stuff, yeah, that's something that we kind of sort of, I believe we here on the show um, might have discussed a little bit here. Um, Soyuz right now, well, not right now, but after uh, the middle of next year, is essentially going to be it, and uh, the Russians know that, and uh, they could probably go ahead and say, yeah, I don't think $55 million uh, a seat's enough. Why don't we jack it up to, like, say, $70 million a seat? And we don't really have any leverage on that now, do we, boys and girls? Because we don't have anything to fly with and we probably won't have anything to fly with for another what three to four years and um, 55 was even jacked up already yeah exactly so that that's 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 a possibility that that could happen um, first off the, the whole all, all, all the points it leads up to one thing we have all of our space launch um, you know, piloted space launch capabilities one more time, all in one basket. And that, that basket is called Soyuz. Soyuz has been around, mind you, since about 1967. Um, it's, it seems to be a fairly reliable machine, but you know, it, it, it does have some problems. Um, Peggy Whitson's flight, for instance, um, I believe, and, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think Oberg does mention this, uh, the instrument uh, module on that flight failed to detach uh, right away. And that caused, um, I believe, the re-entry of Peggy Whitson Soyuz to go in head first. Yeah, it was a ballistic which, landing. Yeah, which was it, not good. So, you know, there could be an issue like that that still is lurking within the Soyuz that we still don't know about. So that, that, that indeed is a possibility. Um, the other thing is crew training. Um, it mentions that uh, uh, one crew had uh, failed their pre-launch test and um, had to go ahead and retake it. They passed it the second time around. But um, it, you know, I believe the article mentioned that uh, uh, the new uh, new uh, uh, commandant over there, um, uh, Sergei Kirkolev, who is a uh, just an absolutely incredible veteran. Uh, cosmonaut um, had has warned um, over and over again that there are there are there is substandard equipment over there and that sub and that equipment needs to be upgraded. 
so far it hasn't eaten into the the training but you know um there's always that that possibility that could that could happen the one that the the, the three that the the last three that he mentions um to me are the most frightening um the, the diplomatic stability um he mentions that the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which is really in, in Tiaratom, uh, Kazakhstan, um, depends on the current leader, um, who basically is holding together this this ethnically, you know, separated country. Um, if he should, you know, Oberg mentions that he that this gentleman is seventy years old. And could, you know, he's not, you know, he's still in good health, but who knows? He may not be long for this world. If there's a new leader, what happens to Baikonur? Does Russia have to go ahead and hammer out a new new agreement to use Baikonur with the new new regime? And the new regime may say, "Um, stuff it. Or they may say, yeah, for a price. So, you know, there is that danger that, that the Baikonur Cosmodrome, maybe, you know, it, it, it's not overly likely, but who knows, um, that we might lose it. But, you know, again, who knows? Um, the scariest one on this list is terrorism. And um, not surprised they even brought that up. Yeah, I mean, but that that was yeah, I was too. But but that one frightens the bejeebus out of me. Uh, where you know they seri- they they think seriously enough of, of that to conduct annual terrorist drills, um, and uh, that is just a a frightening thought that you could have theoretically um, <laughs> an an act of terrorism at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Um, it's 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 a possible it's a scary prospect, especially again. That keeps making me. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead, please. Um, that keeps making me think of that scene from Contact. I keep yes. picturing like what that would be like with you know an actual real spacecraft. It's an absolutely terrifying thought. Yeah, and um, I mean, all of us who have been to KSC for a launch, boy, I mean, you see what the security like is there um, and, and any place that's less secure um, it, it's, it's a frightening thought I mean shoot now they've got SWAT teams following the, 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 the Astro Man and that's you know that, that's that's been in place since since after September 11th so mm-hmm. um, you know they, they take terrorism extraordinarily seriously at KSC and I'm sure they do that over at Baikonur or Kiaratone well, what's um, worth noting is that it was a military installation, and now it's been demilitarized. So they're right. dealing with changing to civilian security, which, um, you know, who knows what the situation might be with that. Uh, it's always tough to do a changeover like that in the best of circumstances. So it's a kind of a frightening thought. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, last one um, Oberg mentions our, our demographics where you've got an aging workforce and it's really tough to go ahead and get new people to come in at lower at lower wages to, to, to work for this. Most of the folks that are coming in are, are, are coming in because they are absolutely, you know, they're essentially like everybody on the show right now or everybody listening to this show 
who are you know they're they're devoted to 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 the space program and space effort. So they'll they'll work for slave wages because of that. But those people are very few and far between, and you need to go ahead and keep that workforce going. It's the same thing that we're going to be encountering in the not too distant future here in this country as the shuttle program winds down. Um, of course, here we take a lot of notes and we. Do, we do a lot to transition people out. We make them, you know, um, make sure the next person knows their system or something. From what this article says, it sounds like they have nothing like that in place because yeah. their attitude is, um, you know, very old-fashioned. I mean, we have to remember these are people, most of the people who work for them came up through the Cold War and, and Soviet Russia. Their system is to never tell anyone anything so that you stay valuable and so it doesn't get out. It, it's a completely different attitude than we have here with transitions. So as scary as it is to lose the best people at NASA, hopefully whoever does come in eventually will, you know, have some sort of, you know, reference to depend upon. But they're not. They're, that's not the situation over there. I don't know about you. I don't know about most workplaces though. But with some of mine, um, some of the shops I've been in. Uh, documentation is not readily available because they don't want to be considered to be expendable. You know, you get rid of me, heck, you get rid of all my knowledge, remember that, and unfortunately that's how people kind of sort of dig in, dig their trench and stay, and stay in their businesses. So, you know, it is practiced here, but it, 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 I don't know how prevalent it's practiced within the program. And from what I know in the, in the space program, everything is, is documented, everything is is uh, uh, meticulously documented here. Uh, so, Cassie, that is going to be a huge problem there. So, Oberg makes a makes a uh, makes six. I thought six valid points, but again, it, it all comes down to we're once again putting all of our our human um, launch capability in one basket again, and that basket is called Soyuz. And to me, that's a dangerous precedent. We did this back in 19 in the 1980s with all of our expendable launch vehicles where we got rid of all of those in favor of the shuttle and then we all know what happened on January on January 28 1986 so um, you know there there we go Mark I believe you had something yeah um you know how we hear the the discussions here in the U.S. about medicine, how the uh, the Food and Drug Administration scrutinizes anything, you know, to the nth degree before they allow it to go on the market, and occasionally pull something back. Well, I wonder if Soyuz is kind of like aspirin, where we say that aspirin probably wouldn't go on the market today if it was introduced as a new drug, and yet it's a common you know, very off-taken, uh, you know, over-the-counter medication. And so I wonder if Soyuz would pass the tests that, uh, you know, that we're, we're talking about being a requirement for future crewed flight uh, spacecraft. I mean, here's SpaceX with the Dragon capsule that, you know, they have said, well, we've designed this from the beginning to be able to carry crew to orbit. And yet it's certified, and I mean not certified, but uh, you know their plan, their business plan at this point is for cargo. And so I 
did some digging and I found a document. It's actually a draft that NASA has. It's called the Commercial Human Rating Plan, and it's dated May 21st of 2010. And they talk about NASA's responsibility to validate flight vehicle systems, operating conditions, mission planning and execution, flight crew training, and that other processes with this are safe. It's a validation through, they refer to it as insight and oversight. And they say insight is discerning the true nature of the project's effort to design, develop, test, and operate the vehicle system. Oversight is watchful, responsible care and management of commercial crew development, test, and operations effort. So my question is, I wonder if Soyuz gets the scrutiny that that we're going to have in the future on you know crew flight hardware i wonder if they would pass the tests that are that are coming in the future it's a good question um i wish i can answer that one for you mark and and probably so does so does nasa i'm sure nasa however is looking at soyuz and has been looking at soyuz for a while and i'm i'm Somebody out there is going to, to correct me on this. I know this, and I know we're going to get a letter on it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I think NASA has already kind of sort of looked at Soyuz and said, no, we don't like this, we don't like that, we don't like the other thing, and basically kind of helped with maybe, I don't want to say a redesign, but uh a, a refit on some of the subsystems on Soyuz before they would even allow our crews to fly. Um, I think I kind of recall hearing something like that. I don't remember the source. I will find out what that is and get back to everybody. But um, I'm sure, I, I have a feeling NASA has, has looked at Soyuz up, down, all around before they would allow our crews to fly. But Mark, it would be a good point. Would it actually go ahead currently and pass a lot of this validation stuff? God, I hope so. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Gene. I think that uh, they would certainly have looked at it. And and I know that, uh, at least in my experience in the technical world, there's a whole lot of uh, behind-the-scenes you know, information uh, exchange to where, at least in, in my workforce, where we don't regard knowledge as proprietary and uh, we're generally quite happy to share, this is what I ran into, this could help you out of a tough situation. And I would bet that, I remember one of the astronauts, I think, that, uh, that we spoke with on a previous show, seems like one of them made the statement that, you know, once they started working together, the U.S. and the Russian astronauts, that you know, you know, there may be politics, and there may be things that are considered, um, you know, uh, out of bounds or, or not shareable between crews. But once you get in space, and and I would hope that you know, on the launch pad and in the uh, design part of the world, that you know, that there's a whole lot of uh, you know, elbow in the side. Hey, you might want to consider this. You know, have you looked at that? So, you know, I think our astronauts are safe. And the fact that Soyuz does have the incredible record they have for the number of launches over the years, you know, it may not be perfect, but, uh, you know, but it's still there. Kind of like our own shuttle. Just so you know, I'm pretty sure that quote that you're talking about was actually from our episode with Dr. Tom Jones. 
Great, thanks. I, I knew it was somebody that I'd heard. <laughs> Terrible memory for who said what. Just ask my wife. She told me what I said, or I don't even know what I said. And isn't that usually the case? Oh, never bring the wife into it. <laughs> and before I dig a deeper hole to bury myself in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I guess that would be a good point to continue on with then. And our next story is a very interesting one. That's breaking news from today. The date of this recording. This was released June 18th, 2010. And it's that President Obama wants to ask Congress to shift $100 million from NASA for job initiatives. To basically sum that up, what he wants to do is take a small part of the roughly $19 billion NASA could receive under the 2011 fiscal year budget. And he wants to actually bring it to the Departments of Commerce and labor for initiatives aimed at helping Florida and other states bracing for job losses associated with the end of the space shuttle program. So, do you agree or disagree with his move to take the $100 million and put it towards jobs for those that will be losing theirs? The first thing I, I, I thought about when I read this, um, and I have to thank, first off, I have to thank Gina Hurley, who isn't with us tonight. Uh, she had a personal commitment that she had to deal with, but she was the one who brought this this article to our attention tonight. Um, the article is on uh, on Space News. It was issued uh, today on uh, Friday, June eighteenth, and it was an article written by Amy Clampler. Um, the first thing I I thought about, and the first thing that went in, into my head was, do you know what the term bohica means? You know, bend over, here it comes. <laughs> um, the um, that's what went through my head. I mean, where does it stop? Um, I realize that you know, hundred million may not seem to be a whole heck of a lot on on, on the uh, on the surface when you're looking at nineteen billion dollars. But what project is going to get smacked by the loss of the one hundred million dollars? That's number one. Number two is, isn't there already a program in place to go ahead and and, and deal with with an economic issue that's right now taking out the entire nation, which is the fact that the economy is not really doing all that well right now. And there are some job creation initiatives, excuse me, um, that are coming down the pike uh, to, you know, help facilitate job growth, in, especially in areas that, that need it the most. Um, why pick NASA's pocket for $100 million um, when you've already supposedly got programs in place to help job growth. And I realize the $100 million is going to wind up in Florida. Some of it may wind up in, in uh, Huntsville. Some of it may wind up in, in Clear Lake. Um, but where does it stop? Where do you draw the line? You know, as far as picking NASA's pocket to do X, and, um, where where does it end? And that's that's the question I have for 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 our president tonight. Why pick NASA's pocket when you have other initiatives going on? Plus, you've already granted uh, the Space Coast. What is it? You initially granted the space Co the Space Coast forty million dollars in, in some sort of job growth subsidy. That they're currently, and I, I don't know if they're, you guys are, are aware that there still isn't a plan for, for distribution of that. Um, also, there was another $15 million 
dollars tacked to that. But again, I don't know if there's been a plan to figure out what to do with that money. And again, you're going to take $100 million out of NASA's budget and do what? What's the oversight? Where is this money going? Um, I'm sure that Congress, too, is going to be asking the same questions, especially those folks on the uh, House uh, Science and Technology Committee and also on the Senate Science and Technology Committee. Why are you taking money out of there for when, you know, what, you know, what, 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 what's the earmark? So these are questions that still remain. And how are we going to, I just don't see the logic. Well, pardon my pessimism, but I wonder if it isn't politics and a way to uh, get Congress off of uh, the president's back and allow the continued shutdown of Constellation. Don't worry, Mark, about the pessimism. Anytime you mention politics, you're mentioning pessimism. (laughs) Well, you know, that that can open up a can of worms nobody wants to deal with, but, uh, you know, it could equate to votes. Yeah, it could, but it also it could equate to um, to votes for the other side too. You know what I'm saying? Especially um, when you're dealing with an area uh, that it, you know that is getting hit really hard for the because you're you're canceling a multi-billion-dollar program like Constellation. I mean, how many people are going to get let go? And let's be serious: one hundred million dollars isn't. You know, it, it might be a small drop in the bucket uh, for for job retraining and things like that, but I don't think it's going to go very far. You know, as compared to, to keeping folks employed. I'm trying to keep my you know my mind open on this. Like, I'd love to hear what the, what pro- kind of job creation and retraining programs they're actually going to do. There's so many options of how that money could be spent. Some of them smart and some of them that don't make sense. And it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what they actually want to do with that money. Because there are people that are in dire need. Some of us know a few of them very well. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do see a need for help for them. But it just seems like the wrong place to take the money from. Uh, an agency that they're already, you know, strapping as much as possible. It, it seems really short-sighted. Yeah, Mark, you had mentioned um, the fact that this could also be um, kind of leading toward, you know, the, the march to trying to shut down Constellation. Um, I believe NASA last week, citing the uh, the Anti-Deficiency Act, had uh, indicated that, uh, okay, um, had told its, its contractors working on Constellation that they have to cut back work by almost a billion dollars to get into compliance. Essentially, this act says that, um, oh, you guys really, really should set away money for just in case um, it, it, we, we cancel the project. And, gee, you guys didn't do that, so now we're asking you to do it to the tune of almost a billion dollars. And essentially, that could cut the legs out right from underneath Constellation. And um, there's there's obviously, you know, some yelling and screaming in Congress um, about all of this, uh, so much so that um, I believe 
on uh, again just on yesterday, um, the uh, uh, U.S. Representative uh, Bart Gordon, who runs the uh, House Science and Technology Committee, um, told uh, uh, Charlie Bolden that he's got up until June 25th to deliver all records, all charts, voice messages, emails, everything that. Um, any type of supporting materials uh, that were used in in creating the 2011 budget proposal. Um, that was reported again by uh, by Space News. Um, I believe it was yesterday. So, uh, you know, the, the 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 ultimate question we've got to ask ourselves is this, and I believe Keith Cowling brought this up on NASA Watch, and I believe Dr. John Logston. Um, also brought this up. Uh, it said a lot of all of this bickering and all of this this positioning and so on um, has got to stop. The reason why is we're coming up on uh, pretty soon on the end of the fiscal year, which I believe uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong is probably October of uh, of this year. Um, the way the government fiscal cycles work. It's either return end of September end of, or end of September, so October is a new start. Right. So here's the deal. We could theoretically have a zombie space program where you have shuttle, constellation, a bunch of other programs still alive and still dead at the same time. These things, you know, where constellation is is, is trying, you know, that people are trying to kill constellation within within NASA. Um, because they want to move on to other things, but the Congress doesn't want to let Constellation die. In the meantime, you may you will still have shuttle funding, because all will hap- what will happen is you'll simply have um, all of the earmarks from from 2010 carry over to 2011. So you'll still have shuttle funding in there too. So essentially, you, you'll have you'll have two two major NASA programs alive and not alive at the same time, and that's one heck of a way to run, run a space program. I mean, we're going to, you're not going to be in, it doesn't to me indicate leadership. It doesn't indicate to me um, any type of confidence. In the international partners, our international partners, are going to want to say, you know, hey, we want, we want the United States to lead. We want NASA to lead. How the heck is, what, what kind of example are we given, in all honesty? When we don't know what the heck we're doing, I mean, we have the, we have this essentially a zombie space program. So what kind of what kind of leadership is that? What kind of example are we set? If we're going to lead, let's lead. Let's whatever direction. We may not agree with the direction, but whatever direction it is, we've got to go. We've we've got to make a decision here, or else the program itself is doomed. Unless we go ahead and make some kind of decision. Here. We may not agree with it, but we've got to make it. And I'd say on that interesting note, we should move on to two little fun stories that we have here. One of them is that apparently the STS-132 crew, the last crew to fly aboard Atlantis, left engineers a little bit of a surprise when they went to check it out. Turns out that when they went in there, a patch was found with the phrase... The first last flight of Atlantis with the addition 
left Earth on 14 May 2010 from pad 39A. Hmm. What do you think about that interesting mystery? And by the way, that rhymed something like you might use Cassie in one of your songs. <laughs> Although I, I still don't understand what actually is the mystery about it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, um, you know, it was autographed by the crew. Uh, you know, obviously it was put in some point while they were on orbit, because otherwise they wouldn't know for sure that they actually left on that date. <laughs> um so I've actually been curious about this story. Every I keep seeing it listed as a mystery, but what's the actual mystery? Well, the mystery is the position that the uh, that the the patch and the note were found. In order to write it, the astronauts would have had to been standing on their heads, so it had to have been written in orbit, and that just kind of to me makes it a special uh, memento, something very very unique, and uh, something that uh, hopefully won't get scraped off in preparing it for a launch on need uh, mission if it comes to that yeah it was apparently on the upper side of a locker yeah i think it was i, I think uh the, the article uh, the uh, article via um i believe the uh, uh channel 13 uh website down in uh in central florida there said it was locker a10 if i'm not mistaken uh, A16. A16, I'm sorry. Um, i got to clean my glasses. Sorry, he found um, it all just using a mirror to scan af- after post-launch, uh, post-landing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you know, so it, it's kind yeah, of Yeah, that's neat. really cool. <laughs> it, it's kind of a neat little memento, and, and I'm with Mark. I hope it stays. Um, even, if even if 135 flies, um, I hope it stays. Well, hopefully in a position like that, there wouldn't be any reason to, you know, remove it or mess it up in any way. Well, you never know. They may need Locker A-16, so. Yeah, but hopefully it can survive. (laughs) Yeah, the old weight and balance stuff. Yeah, so. So with that, I believe we can move on to our next fun little story. And that is, you can, as Gene put it before we actually went on the air... You can space your face. And as strange as that sounds, what that means is that you will be able to actually send a picture of yourself and your face into space aboard either STS-133 or 134, the final two remaining space shuttle missions. If you like, you can upload it, they'll send it to the shuttle, and you can track its progress online. So what do you think about this initiative to get people to send themselves into space? I think it's a cool little little memento of the last two shuttle flights, knowing that uh, it, it's sort of a way of personalizing the two flights and, and sort of making it feel like you're a part of the you're a part of history. And yeah, I'm there, and yeah, Oliver's there too. I thought I'd mention that, but anyway. For those of you um, that don't know, Oliver <laughs> is Gene's pet rabbit. <laughs> so I thought I'd mention that, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it, it's it's just uh, your chance to be a part of history, and to be a, to really be a genuine part of the the last two flights. I think that's kind of a cool gesture by NASA's part. So, for those listening, I really encourage you to to uh, to go ahead and and try that, and get your your face on board uh, on board either uh, Discovery or Endeavor as they uh, they leave for the last, mm, they leave uh, Earth for the last time. 
And Sawyer, please tell me that's going to be in the show notes, the link to that. It will be. The website is actually faceinspace.nasa.gov. That's a wonderful progression from just, like, sending your name to, um, you know, I'm sure everyone talking here tonight has had their name sent somewhere at this point. <laughs> and um, Yeah, where it's so know. small that you but, can't even see it. It's engraved on some microchip somewhere. Right, <laughs> right. And uh, but this is this is like you know a neat continuation of those programs. In fact, I think uh, the most recent program for um, sending your name is uh, for the uh, Mars Science Laboratory rover, um, and uh, they're it's actually putting like the names of data on a microchip. It's, I don't even think they're engraving it in that case. <laughs> but uh, how cool that you can you know that they're they're moving this along along with technology it's a very neat thing to think of so i believe that we have one last story and that was of a recent exhibit that was opened at the intrepid sea air and space museum in new york city it is actually an exhibit called 27 seconds which is dedicated to the crew of apollo 1 and that's exactly how long it took for the crew to unfortunately perish in that fire. So it, it's a very touching memorial, and uh, June 17, 2010 was the official opening, and even the family of Roger Taffy, who was one of the members on board, were there for the event, and it was a great, great time. Yeah, I, I kind of wish I was I was there for the opening, but I do intend to, to stop over at the Intrepid and take a look at the exhibit. And uh, we were we were talking just before we went on uh, on to uh, I guess for lack of a better phrase on air um, about uh, Roger Chaffee's relatives uh, being there for uh, for the opening. And it, I, I hearing that I kind of re- regret really not being there. So it was a, a an interesting little story about Roger, and it kind of tells where what kind of man Roger Chaffee really was. Um, in um, a book called Chariots for Apollo uh, by uh, Charles R. Pellegrino and uh, Joshua Stoff, um, it, it relates a story of, of Roger Chaffee visiting the Grumman plant and uh, where they were building the lamp and. Uh, Roger wanted to go ahead and make sure he he shook the hands of everybody on that shift that was uh, there and working on the lamb and told them you know what a great contribution you f- that the workers were making um, and and wanted to make sure they all knew how important they were in getting us to the moon and uh, I believe one of the, the folks said you know well you want to meet the guys that are making the tools to go ahead and and help us out here you know, to, fit, to build the spacecraft. And he said, yeah, sure. Um, so Roger Chaffee did the same thing with the folks that were di- designing the tools to build the lamp. And uh, again, shook every one of their hands and said, you know, we really, really want you to, I really want you to know what a, what a great contribution you guys are making. He wanted to make sure everybody was included. And that, I think, speaks volumes about Roger Chaffee, the man, uh, wanting to make sure that Every everybody knew how important the job really, really was, and uh, I, I 
I really wanted to go in. If I if I knew known would have known that his relatives were going to be there, I would really love to share that story with him. That that has stuck in my head ever since I've read this book. They have some very interesting things at the exhibit too that just make you just stop and sends chills down you. I'm not going to give away the entire exhibit, but one of the things that's displayed proudly in the center is actually one of the telegrams that the family of Roger Chaffee received after the fire. And it, it just opens your eyes and just puts you in shock. And I mean, even if you haven't seen it, just listening to it, you could just, you get that feeling down your back of just realizing, oh, that was sent to somebody after their son was killed in an accident. It's terrible, yet it's a great tribute. The entire exhibit is an amazing tribute, and if you're ever in New York, I really do recommend going down to the Intrepid and taking a look at that exhibit. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I I just got goosebumps by you mentioning that telegram. I mean, man, just, we gang, if you're you're in the New York area or visiting the New York area, please visit the Intrepid right now. There's some other things in there that I don't want to give it all away, but it, it just, it's a great homage to a great crew. And with that, I believe that wraps up episode 221. So I would like to thank everybody once again for joining us. Thank you, Gene McCulka. Always happy to be here, Sawyer. I always learn a lot from all you guys, so it's always fun. You're not kidding. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good time, good time. And thank you as well for joining us, Craftless. Oh, thank you for having me. Anytime. And once again, thank you for joining us for another episode of Talking Space. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.